Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Julian Morgans, and you're listening to What It Was Like, the show that asks people who have lived through big, dramatic events what it was like. Jennifer Wynn is a mitigation specialist. And what that means is that for Americans who find themselves charged with a crime that could attract the death penalty, Jennifer attempts to mitigate their sentence. And what that means is that she has to convince a jury that, no, actually this person charged with a murder is just misunderstood. And in order to do that, Jennifer has to get to know her clients. She meets with them, these these people who have just committed horrific, desperate crimes, and she asks them questions about their lives, about their childhoods and and who they were in the years and, and days before they killed somebody. And in this way, she gets to know them, and then she stands up in court and explains to the jury why this defendant doesn't deserve death. And you know what? Jennifer says that she's discovered through the course of her work that there's actually no such thing as evil, that this notion that some people are just inherently bad, that's actually a misconception. She says that once you get to know somebody, once you really peel back all the layers of trauma and, and self-loathing and addiction and, and like poverty, then you can see anyone's humanity. And even the worst monsters have a sense of humanity. So we're going to talk to Jennifer about all of this. But before we get started, I should just mention that Jennifer actually never set out to have this career. She just fell into it via a friend's recommendation. She had a PhD in criminology and and she'd been working in the field in an academic sense for around 15 years. She had this like nice, comfortable teaching position at a college. She says she was kind of bored. And then one day a friend of hers recommended her for a temp job as a mitigation specialist. And that's taken us up to this point. So Jennifer, can you remember what your first day on the job was like? So, no, and I do remember very well my very first, um, I I was given two first cases. Um, 
and they were both in Philadelphia. And I first went to the attorney's office, met with her, and she gave me the the rundown on the the clients, the defendants. The one's name is Hector, and one is named Sean. And they were both, um, you know, the lawyer said to me, oh, you're going to love them. They speak the King's English. They are so polite. They're really articulate. They both are remorseful. And they had very similar crimes. They both killed their girlfriends. And so anyway, so she's like, but look, you know, they both want to die. So your job really is to get them not to kill themselves. Oof, that's a hell of a job on your first day. Yeah. So I left her office, drove to the jail, and they were actually housed in two different jails, you know, one down the road from the next. And Sean was blind. He was made blind because before he killed his girlfriend, he was a, a military, a veteran. He had fought in uh, the Somali war, which Eunice engaged in in the early 90s. And it was a pretty awful war. And he saw some awful things. And his job in the military was, quote unquote, bagging and gagging. You know, we're talking like removing dead bodies. And he was also a gunner. And um, he came back in like 94, I think it was, 95. And he had PTSD. And this was before post-traumatic stress disorder was really even known known as well as it is now. So he was was pretty crazy when he got discharged uh, with honors. I mean, he had a purple heart for saving his lieutenant's life. He, He did kind of amazing things as a gunner in this war. Anyway, but he turned to street drugs to quiet the demons and he was smoking crack and getting prescription meds from the local veterans hospital. So he was really messed up and he was living with a girl who was also on drugs and his mental health was pretty deteriorated and he killed her. He doesn't remember, he didn't remember killing her. Before he killed her, he drank a quart of antifreeze mixed with orange Kool-Aid. He wanted to die. I mean, he was suicidal. Yeah, he was, he yeah. felt useless. He kept trying to rejoin the military and they wouldn't let him because they could see he was batshit crazy. And he drank this uh, antifreeze, which he mixed with orange Kool-Aid, and he sat down on his, on his kitchen floor hoping to die. And he woke up a number of hours later, at least 12 to 15 hours later, to his neighbor knocking on the door and saying, I have your cat. Your cat climbed out of your window and has come down to my apartment. Meanwhile, Sean is saying, I, I can't see you. I can't see you. You know, he kind of was coming too, and I, he, he'd gone blind from the antifreeze. Wow. And so she called an ambulance. The ambulance came, brought him to a hospital, and he's in the uh, hospital, and they're flushing his kidneys. And meanwhile, back at the apartment, his girlfriend's body was underneath a pile of clothes on her on her bed. Uh, she'd been bludgeoned to death. She was bagged and get. I mean, there was a plastic bag over her head, and uh, I think he used a tie as a ligature, and th- had thrown a bunch of clothes on top of her body. Poured mouthwash on top of that. I mean, kind of crazy actions, right? This was a very yeah, disorganized yeah. crime. And uh, interestingly enough, her father uh, worked for the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency in the United States, and uh, had a feeling that she was using drugs and using drugs with Sean. And when he hadn't heard from her for a couple of days, he beelined it up to the apartment. And basically, while Sean's in the hospital with, you know, tubes and getting his kidneys flushed, the father and the apartment manager have gone into the apartment and found the body of his, his girlfriend. And 
got to the hospital and told the cops, and the cops were there, detectives, and said, you know, do- told the doctors, just get him out of here. And the doctors were like, don't take him off. Like, he will go blind if we don't finish this. And they were just like, well, we don't give a shit. And they took him to jail and they, they had him on prednisone, high amounts of prednisone, which is known to cause hallucinations. And he was, I mean, he was, he told me that he remembers like completely hallucinating while they're interrogating him. You know, I mean, in, literally in this statement that he made to the cops, he's like, Pink Floyd is playing on the roof of the building. Why? I mean, he was actively hallucinating. Right, and yet right. they managed to get this, you know, completely coherent, quote unquote, statement from him admitting to killing her, which they contrived. The cops contrived it. Um, but Sean it was a good guy. And like he he said, I know I did this. Who who else did this? But I don't remember. And he at that time, he did not remember doing it. He's I keep in touch with him. This was 10 years ago. And he's told me that he's, parts of, are, are coming back to him now, like in his dreams. And it's kind of awful. But anyway, yeah, so mm. he finds himself in jail facing the death penalty as a 36-year-old man, newly bl- blind, blind. I mean, he's in jail. He knows he's going to spend like probably the rest of his life in prison and he's blind. And so, yes, he, he wanted to die. Well, when you give us that story- like you're framing it in a way where his humanity is very easy to understand. You know, you come back as a damaged veteran mm. from, from from this war and, you know, but but I guess from an outside perspective or from like a police perspective, you know, this guy just bludgeoned his girlfriend to death on a bed and then poured mouthwash all over her, you know. So, so I think it's really interesting how you can immediately see these two sides to this story. He's like, it's a horrific crime. Yeah, it but is. yes, it was yeah. a long time coming. So what did you do in that situation? You know, how did you help him? As a mitigation specialist, my job is is to really fully understand who this person is in case I have to testify. If it goes to trial and they lose, I have to testify in the penalty phase and explain to the jury how this person became this person, right? Who, who like, explain their lived experience. So I have, I will have many, many meetings with the, uh, with the defendant. So what I said to Sean was like, I, will, I just said, look, please, you... You need to, if you would, help me. I, this is my first day on the job, and I, I think I'm. I could be really good at this. And let's. Can we just talk? Like, can we just hang out and talk for a while? Because I don't want to go back to New York, and and tell the attorneys that you you still want to die. Like, can, can we just like I'm going to come back next week, all right? And we'll continue the. I want to help you understand for yourself. This is explainable because I, I knew he was a good guy. He, he does. He wasn't a career criminal. He he was. He doesn't have a rap sheet. You know, like I knew going into this that this was that, that this crime happened because he was out of his mind. And if he if he hadn't been out of his mind, it wouldn't have happened. So I just kind of started there. People who end up arrested and arrested for murder, they do feel tremendous shame. I, I've I've worked on thirty cases and. I mean, my clients, for the most part, feel tremendous remorse and shame, and they're not bragging about it. They're not stone. Co- I mean, we have all these misperceptions, you know, about mm, how people okay. who kill are, and I've just never experienced like that. So, so what I'm hearing here is a lot of empathy. It's, it feels to me like you've you've uh, turned your innate empathy into a profession. Mm. So help me to understand that. Let's let's go back to <laughs> sort of your, some of your earlier years. You know, do you feel like were you the kid who was who was always like particularly nice to animals? And you know, were, were you a tell, <laughs> tell me funny. about your childhood? <laughs> uh, um, I I had a good childhood. I had lovely parents who were very kind people. 
and smart people. Um, one of my parents is an alcoholic. I should share that. And that, I think, made me very aware of the fact that people can do really awful things and regret them and not mean to do them. And yet they'll be labeled, you know, they'll be labeled and shamed. So I don't know. I think being a child of an alcoholic helps you develop empathy. Yeah. Uh, where, whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in a uh, very uh, small town in, in New Jersey. So I'm imagining like a rural setting. Yeah, rural setting. I mean, it was a really kind of idyllic, a very yeah. un- lots of acres and you didn't you know lock your door if you left. And it was a very idyllic kind of setting. Sure. And what did your parents lucky. do? Um, my dad worked as a stockbroker on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And my mother uh, sold commercial real estate and then got into teaching. I mean, can you are you comfortable sort of sharing a bit more about that? Was was there a specific moment uh, with your alcoholic parent that you recall being like, "Look, this isn't actually their fault. They're they're not being themselves right now. Uh, they're a good person on the inside." Do you do you have a recollection like that? Uh, no, but I, I I don't have a specific recollection. But I learned that that good people can do horrible things and regret them, and that shaming and blaming is never effective. So on the one hand, you can understand where someone's coming from. You know, you can recognize that someone's a good person, even if they're behaving like a bad person. But still, you're coming face to face with these people in prisons. Yeah. You know, like surely sometimes you're scared. For example, you look at these people and you're like, you're, you're very intimidating. Out of roughly 30 cases I've worked on, all but one are male. And of those 29 males, um, I only felt of uh, maybe slightly afraid once See, because I'm, they, they, I'm on their side. You know what I mean? Like they know that. So they're not, I'm not in their face. I'm not challenging them. I'm seeking to understand them and help them. And so they, they're extremely nice to me. You know, if anything, I aired, you know, I, I can sometimes be guilty of like being conned, you know, pulled in a bit too much. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But one of my clients scared me a little bit because I could tell that he, you know, I was trying to get him to take a plea, to agree to plead guilty and avoid going to trial. And this is a, a very large man who had described to me doing some pretty awful things, you know, including animal abuse. Uh, I just knew, I, I could tell, I could tell that he is one of those very rare, rare individuals who gets a kind of erotic thrill from hurting people. And uh, he did not use those words, but I know I'm aware of the... Uh, typology. And, you know, when I was pressing him to take a plea and I think I, you know, I said some things that I probably shouldn't have said to him. He was getting angry and he kind of just really was glaring at me, like just glaring and glaring and he was not saying anything. And I, I saw, I thought, oh shit, I'm in this tiny room with this person who's, you know, twice my size. And, you know, he was not handcuffed. I mean, he, he could have strangled me and nobody would so, so that was a bit of a rare time. Yeah, it's rare. It's very rare. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I find that surprising. I find that really surprising. Like if you asked me to go into a prison and talk to a convicted killer or a killer on trial anyway, yeah. I'd be nervous. I would I would have assumed that it was a fairly dicey thing to do. I worked for many years on Rikers Island. It was a vocational training and reentry program. And even though the participants in that program had not killed people, least that I know of, I was very comfortable working with people like that. And I'd been working with them for years, you know, and advocating for them on some level. So I think that that also helped. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. as I came to know people 
you know, my first two clients, uh, Sean and, and Hector, they're fascinating people and they have hearts and they are, they made awful mistakes and they'll die in prison because of these awful mistakes and they regret these mistakes. And I don't know, they're not sociopaths by any means. So I guess I was lucky in that I had my first two clients taught me that, that good people can kill. I know that sounds awful, but... My immediate reaction is it's like a feeling of sadness when you say that because you hear about people getting multiple life sentences or getting death Ugh. and you just assume that they, they deserve it. Oh, they don't. This, they don't. Like, do you guys have death? Do you have life sentences in your country? We've got life sentences. Mandatory uh, we life. Don't, we don't have the death penalty, as yeah. you know. Yeah. So U.S. stands alone, you know, in the company of a couple other great countries, yeah, with our use of the death penalty. <laughs> um, yeah. It's just awful. And in my field, the alternative to the death penalty, like a victory in my cases, is is life in prison without parole. Like that's the victory. Like if we can get the client to plead guilty and accept remorse, but it on avoid trial, they get, you know, rewarded with a mandatory life sentence. And a number of my clients have been people in their 20s. So they will die mm. in prison. They will die in prison. And we have tens of thousands of individuals in this in our country who are serving mandatory life sentences. In the state of Pennsylvania, where I work on these capital cases, second-degree murder is a mandatory life sentence. And second-degree murder can mean, an example would be, uh, you and I decide to kill your, your producer, and I'm the lookout, but you do the killing. But I conspired with you to do it. Okay, I wasn't yeah. even in the room when you did it. Sorry, sorry, producer Rachel. Yeah, sorry, Rachel. We're yeah, not sorry, Rachel. <laughs> Making the sacrifice. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like that's how that's how insanely harsh. U.S. sentencing laws are. Right. I should say Pennsylvania state because we have our state laws and our federal laws, which aren't, aren't quite as bad. It feels like it's sold as being a form of um, rehabilitation. But in, in its essence, it's actually just like, well, you killed people, so now we kill you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the death penalty for sure. Eye for an eye, yes. Yes, and then these mandatory life and prison sentences. Um, no, I don't think people, uh, there's any expectation in this country that rehabilitation is going to happen, but it's like, we're going to sentence you to the most severe punishment that is possible so that you can, you know, suffer every day of your life. I mean, there's so much, you know, there's so much anger and sadness. And I, you know, I don't spend a lot of time in the, in my, in the victim's worlds. I don't, it's, it's not my job, but I, I always think of them and I try sometimes if I can, sometimes the district attorneys won't, won't let me, but if I can make contact with the victim's family members, I do and try to express the remorse that my client feels. Um, sometimes they don't want to hear it. I mean, oftentimes they don't. It's hard for me to have empathy for my clients and then have empathy for them too. You know what I mean? I, I need to be yeah. very focused on making sure my client doesn't get the death penalty. So that case that you were describing before, uh, Sean, yeah. Sean the veteran, uh, he's still in jail. Yeah, he'll, he's in prison and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And you, but you want to hear something? Yeah. It's it's amazing. This he's really transformed himself. I mean, he he's off of drugs. He's in the best physical shape that he's ever been in. He gets uh, audiobooks, you know, and he listens to them. And he's very he's become what's called a certified peer specialist. So he works as a hospice worker. He works with prisoners who are dying of old age or some. The chronic, you know, condition. He is at their bedside with them, 
he's doing remarkably well and he still feels awful about this crime, but he's doing as as well as can be expected, which is really kind of amazing. You said before that this this was this case happened ten years ago. Do you yeah. do you still feel affected by it? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. I well I, do, I feel angry at the system. He had awful attorneys. One of the attorneys was like drunk at the trial. I mean, it was so bad. It was such a bad, it was it was so bad. And like if he had had better reputation, he would not, he would have cut a third degree. Third degree murders, you know, I was out of my, I did it, but I was out of my mind. And, but it's it's not unusual to find attorneys who simply do not care about their clients and about saving them. They're overwhelmed by the work. They feel vilified themselves to be working, you know, defending monsters and they do very little investigation. Sometimes you get good attorneys who care and who do investigation, but, you know, in this country, we've had numerous people on death row who have been found to be factually innocent. It was over 100, 160 something, I think, at this point. And I mean, if that, you know, there's supposed to be super due process in this case, in death penalty right. cases, and there's not. And that's a real tragedy. And I've had a and couple of clients who I do think are, are factually innocent and who are rotting away in prison. Yeah. And and you think it's a simply a case of these attorneys, they're just like asleep they're, at the wheel. They don't well, care. They're, they're not well funded. They're not given the funding they need and the help that they need. And, uh, I think they become so kind of beaten down by the system that they just assume the defendant is guilty. And and, and actually, yeah. the, the lawyers that I have on cases where the lawyers have been fantastic and really did investigation and handled the case like they should, they've been working in very well-funded public defender's offices or the client was had money and they were paid privately. And then it, then, right. then they worked. <laughs> So, so it feels to me like the Sean case, you don't have to look too hard to find the humanity in that case. Correct, 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 yeah. Can you, can you tell me about a case where, where the humanity was, was a little bit more obscured? Let's see. My client, uh, I had a, a female who killed her uh, baby. Her child was uh, 18 months old and she smothered it to death. And she tried to smother and kill uh, the child's sibling who was like two and a half. And uh, she made a video recording of herself doing it and Why? sent it to the, well, she was trying to get the baby's father's attention. Uh, so she was, she was uh, murdering her own children. On, and she the, videotaped it. And, and she yeah, sent right. him, and she, yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She said, look, see, he's dead. I yeah, know, okay. I know. Isn't All right. that horrendous? That's horrific. Yeah, horrific, yeah, horrific. <laughs> I mean, just horrific. So I initially, I didn't want to take the case, but I, I ended up taking the case. And because uh, I, I just felt like I couldn't muster the empathy, you know, to help her. And uh, the attorneys said to me, I asked them, what, what, what's she like? And they said, she's actually a doll. Like, she's the sweetest person. So right there, that just got me so intrigued. I'm like, how can this be? Yeah. 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 So run me through it. You, yeah. What, what so was no, it like I sat down or... And I, I mean, I spent probably, I don't know, 50 hours at least with her. You know, many, many, many visits over the course of a year or two. And um, like she she didn't look like she looked in those, I mean, there were several videos and numerous text messages, all of which I'd seen. She didn't talk like that person. She didn't seem like that person. She was completely different. 
And do you mean literally in the videos that she, she, her, vo- her voice sounded different? And her she voice sort of sounded different. Like different. She had a very like, quote unquote ghetto persona. Right. Very rough, very kind of sca- very scary sounding, you know, heartless. And um, in person, you know, I mean, when I after, when I met her, she was she was extremely pleasant and normal and uh, composed. And I think it was a case of disassociation, and that she possibly does have what's now called disassociative um, identity disorder, which used to be called multiple personality disorder. Um, I think I've had a couple clients who have um, who have ha- have this condition, and it's unusual. But it is not that unusual in people who have endured sadistic abuse in their childhoods. I'm not talking about being whipped with belts. I'm talking about sexual abuse, ongoing rape, incest, um, tortured essentially by your and and she was. Sure. And she had learned to to escape from that mentally via dissociation. Exactly. Exactly. She was clearly suffering from postpartum depression. She had, the minute they, she got into the jail, they got her on Depakote for, they suspected bipolar disorder. And she had no help. She had no help from the baby's father. She had no help from her own parents. She had no help from the community. This was a woman who was abandoned. She lived in abject poverty. And what kills me is that our quote unquote child protective services who were assigned to her case because she had tested positive for marijuana when, when the second child was born, they did nothing. And they should have been so alerted to her because her own parents had a mile high file from CPS. I mean, there was so much abuse to her that the that agency knew of, right? And so much dysfunction in that family. It's like she was such a, she should have been red flagged. Like when she got mm. pregnant, I mean, I just, I feel like so much of this, you know, the brutal killings that we see could be prevented if upon uh, a woman discovering she's pregnant and getting prenatal care, she also is is gets extensive education on abuse and postpartum depression, and you know the recipes, you know, for violence. That's that's really interesting. It sounds like you're you're suggesting that a lot of a lot of these people who kill, they've they've got you know these horrible pasts, this sort of history of abuse. Absolutely. I mean, it's I've, just sitting there. It's a powder keg. A powder keg, and this is common. I have not had one case, not one case, in which a sadistic level of child abuse was not present. There are usually three things that are present in every case. Horrendous, horrendous child abuse, which doesn't always take the form. I mean, it, it takes many forms, but there's one is, you know, there's pain, but there's also the humiliation, the humiliation. Okay, mothers who come to their children's school, drunk or high, pull their kid out of a class, beat the kid in front of their classmates, things like this. So, and, and it's chronic mm. and it's, so there's always some kind of sadistic level of child abuse. There is some kind of mental illness going on, untreated, undiagnosed mental illness. And the third prong or the third thing that is usually present in every case I've worked on is um, the person was um, e- either drunk or on um, some kind of uh, serious 
not, we're not talking marijuana, but and not usually the opioids, but uh, it's more like you know methamphetamine or cocaine, something like this. That's. I mean, it's unsurprising when you say it. It's like it makes perfect sense. You yes. Know, like, what would it? What are the ingredients? Yeah. To, to form a homicide. Yeah. There they are. There's there's yeah. three ingredients yeah. that go into that. And they're usually at the at the lowest point of their lives. And that's that's one of the questions I always start out with. You know, once I've you know, gotten the client to trust me a bit is, is, you know, tell me about the last two months, the, the two months of your life before this happened. And usually what you see is that the person was, they'd lost basically everything. You know, their lives tend to be a real struggle, period. But they kind of get to this place where they, they've, you know, they've gotten fired from every job. They've gotten kicked out by the last girlfriend. Family, if they have them, aren't interested. And they've, they don't have much to lose and they're desperate people. And then there's that one final insult or that's final, you know, injury to their, their persona and they lose it. Uh, do you believe in bad luck? I mean, it certainly seems like, yeah, people, some people have horrible luck due to no fault of their own. Right. I mean, so much of what, how we end up in life depends on who we're born to. Right. And we don't choose our parents. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And, I'm, and I mean, my, I, I, most of my clients are born to women who didn't want them in the first place, who truly did not want them. Right, right. Yeah, and shouldn't have had them and should not have ever had them. And I know that mothers are the sacred cows, you know, but I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't understand why women have children they cannot care for, they do not want. And I actually just took a, a new case. I haven't met my client, but she actually... I just, you know, got this thumbnail sketch from the attorneys last night and uh, she killed two of her, she killed her two kids who were adults. One was 16 and one was 22. Also a military vet. Yeah. Yeah, she shot them both in the head. Yeah. Oh my God. I know, I know. Hey, we're just going to take a quick ad break here and we're going to be right back with more What It Was Like. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let's explore the luck thing again because because it just occurred to me, and I'm, mm. this is a half-baked theory, so bear with me. But uh, we were talking before about this sort of America's belief in a, in a sort of dog-eat-dog system, which seems largely reliant on the notion of like you make – yourself like it's yes. this kind of doctrine of self-made people yes which which really suggests that there's no there's no sort of luck factor there's no like yeah. there's no fate you know like if yes. you want it if you dream it you can achieve it yes but you're suggesting that actually there's this much darker side to reality in which sometimes really infinitely shitty things happen over a long period of time to ba- to good people yes and then you and end up make, on death and, row. and then we and then we act offended you know when when they when when they do horrible things and this is what you see i mean you see you know, the, the risk factors, right? The people who engage in seriously aberrant, violent behavior, there is a, there is a, a whole, there are 20 different risk factors and they're all present. Risk factors for violent and, and, and criminal behavior, you know, from residential mm-hmm. instability, meaning you're moving every other, every other six months. I mean, it's very common in my clients' lives. You know, mothers uh, don't, they, look, they're, they're poor. There's abject poverty. They can't pay the rent. So they are constantly moving because they're, you know, promising, oh, we'll pay or they pay whatever. And then they, mm. you know, and so boom, they're, they're gone. And so what does that do to the psyche of a child? You know, you have to make new friends. You, and you're always, you know, being mocked and humiliated anyway because your mother's on drugs and your father's an alcoholic and you wear, you don't have the right clothes to go to school because you peed in them and you don't have a washer and dryer and you are hungry all the time. And, you know, mom is sending you to the store to get liquor for her or, you know, to buy drugs. And I mean, they live these awful, awful, awful lives. And, you know, it's like, we just, we don't, we don't look at that. Nobody tells their story until, until something horrible happens, you know? Americans like to think that we're, you know, self-made, you know, this merit-based kind Mm. of system, which is, Please, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In this country, you're born to uh, parents who have money. That's 80% of the battle, right? Because we don't have free healthcare, because yeah. we, our, our public school system is funded by your property taxes. So if you live in a very poor town, you're going to have a crappy school, right? And your police force is not going to be great because it's tiny. And, you know, so... <laughs> just being poor in this country sets you up for failure. And people who fail feel embarrassed and ashamed and can do bad things. 
Yeah. So, so the woman that you were describing before, who uh, who killed her baby, uh, how's she doing now? She's doing okay. You know, she is. She's. I mean, she was only twenty-one. This is the other thing. That's young. Like yeah. You're a kid yourself. Yes, and your brain is not fully developed, and that's the thing that I mean. I know some European countries, Germany, and I know at least Germany um, has changed their juvenile, the age of criminal responsibility to correspond with the research on brain development. And we know that, you know, at least for males, the brain is not fully the frontal lobe, which is the seat of executive functioning, which is reasoning and planning and consequences. That's not fully developed until a person's like 25. So what we're doing, you know, by by just writing people off when when we know and holding them fully morally responsible when they were unformed. These are unformed people. They haven't had mm. the the years on earth. And also they've been exposed to so many uh, environmental insults, right? Growing up, right? We know that trauma and stress impedes brain development, right? Many of my clients have, have neurological impairments, you know, and they often will turn to drugs to self-medicate um, trauma. Yeah, 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 which is reasonable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Given some of these histories yeah. you've described, yeah. I mean, I'd do it too. Yeah. How do you feel, I mean, how does your job affect you emotionally? Well, um, I'll tell you something. It energizes me. I mean, I know, yeah. you know, it would. It does energize me because it's important to me to do work that is meaningful. And I like being an advocate and I like trying to help people. Um, it can be very, it can be draining when, I feel like the attorneys don't care or just are not paying attention the way they should and just have kind of written off the client and, you know, don't convince the judges that we need more time or money to find more witnesses, like character witnesses or whatever we need to to really uh, show how this, you know, why this happened, how this happened and why the, why the, uh, defendant should get a, a even a, a less than life sentence because that that's my goal now. Is I'm trying to get my clients less than life sentences. These these mandatory life in prison sentences to me are no victory. You know this my client who killed her kid. You know when she was 21, her brain wasn't developed, sadistically abused. Like where's the state saying? You know what? We are also responsible. You know where's mm. the low CPS saying? You know what? We take some responsibility. And actually, in, in her case. One of the amazing things was her father at the sentencing hearing, he came and he said at her, when she was sentenced to die in prison as a 21-year-old, he said, this is my fault. I created the seeds of her behavior. Because wow. what, he said, and he said, I did and her mother did. Now her mother was batshit crazy, was not even present. And, you know, tried to sue him and me and everybody else. But he took responsibility. He he was he was an alcoholic who got clean and sober and is a different person. And uh, you know, hear that. That's such a wild but, ride. Um, because on yeah, the one so hand, no, my in goal this now case is to, is yeah. just like the worst of humanity that you can possibly yeah. imagine. Like the, yeah. the the darkest world. Yeah. And then the like on the other hand, you describe this this uh, recently sober father who takes the stand and and you know, there's suddenly this like bit of bit of sunlight comes through the cloud. Yes, you are witness to, on some level, truly awful, awful things. But yet there's always there's always a person or things that happen in a case that remind you that 
miracles can happen. Miracles can happen and that goodness, extraordinarily good and understanding people exist and will do incredible things to help people. That's, that's, uh, that's really beautiful. Do you feel like it's changed working, uh, doing this advocacy work? Do you feel like it's changed your perception of the country that you live in or the world that we live in? I mean, I know that you've delivered a pretty uh, scathing review of America. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely yeah. changed my, my thinking about this country for sure. Yeah. Heartless, cold, no responsibility. Why don't we? Yeah. And, and, and this hypocritical, you know, so our criminal justice system, you know, these ideals, et cetera, are, are not, um, if, if there's not super due process on death, if there's sloppy work on death penalty cases, sloppy defense work, what does that tell you about, you know, your average felony? Do you know what I mean? Like if these kinds of, if a lawyer can show up drunk to a trial where the client's life is in the balance, you know, what does that mean for the the client who stole a car? You know? Mm. <laughs> Yeah. So it's really opened my eyes to the serious defects in our criminal justice system. Uh, I mean, there's another element to this. or well, there's another element to American culture that I find really interesting. And I mean, it's the fact, <laughs> it's an obsession with, with crime. It's an obsession with, oh, with murder from, as, uh, from like an audience perspective. I mean, the, the question really is like, what's, what, what's your read on this population that finds murder really interesting? What do you know that they don't? Yeah, because the people are really more fascinated with the the quote unquote psychopath without a heart, without a conscience. I've just not. I haven't really come across anybody like that. So if you believe that, then then you don't. You meaning we as a society, we don't have to take responsibility, you know, because oh, they were just born like that. No, people aren't born like this. I don't know anybody who wanted to, you know, five years old said, oh, I can't wait to, you know, I mean. Look, some kids have neurological impairments and they're doing, you know, violent things at a young age. They're kicking the cat and pulling the daffodils out of the drive, you know, the garden of the neighbor or whatever. They're doing things that are really weird and wrong and kind of getting a kick out of it. And it's, there's usually some kind of neurological thing going along. They might be, there there, there are things, I don't want to label any group in particular, but, but, you know, in general, it's not because somebody made a choice to do that. You know, there are things that are going on that we just don't understand, I think. You know, yeah. So yeah, maybe yeah. this this notion that there are well, it's, I guess if you believe that there are people out there who kill because they they have no heart, they're no conscience, and they are, you know get a thrill out of doing it. That most most people who kill are like that. Then then maybe you wouldn't you would have to have you wouldn't have to have sympathy for them. You know, I mean, but if if people knew what I knew about people who kill, I think they'd maybe be a lot less interested. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. Do you believe that there's such a thing as evil? No, I don't. I think it's just a it's just a, a throwaway word for behavior that was made. I and mean, people can do things that we would say are quote unquote evil, heinous, awful. But as I said before, the 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 seeds of this behavior were planted long ago in conditions that were avoidable. I mean, I find that one of the reasons I find that statement interesting is that you suggested before that you, you've you witnessed things that you describe as miracles, you know, the best of life. You, you've mm-hmm. seen that. Yeah. But I'm also asking you about the very worst of life, you know, like is there such a thing as an innate darkness? And you're saying, no, 
It's it's an entirely it's a it's a natural byproduct of other factors. Well, look, maybe it does exist. I just I haven't seen it. I've worked with people who have committed the worst kinds of crimes, um, but I have yet to meet one that I would describe as evil. What about uh, what about this guy you were you were talking about earlier? Who you, you said I was kind of scared was, of. The, yeah, yeah, the guy you were scared of. Well, I know Tell his me a bit background. More about I know his background. I mean, his his you know his mother to punish him, she used to um, make him place his hands on a radiator. Okay, his hands on a hot steaming radiator, while and strip naked first. Sorry, I forgot that part. And whip him with a belt while she was burning his hands. Okay. Jesus. Um, yeah, you know that was just one of her one of her many routine punishments of him. So the okay. fact that he could not feel, the fact that he he was also sexually abused, and the fact that he he strangled to death a, a girlfriend who uh, rejected him was not a surprise to me. And the fact that he was so numb to his own feelings. When you're humiliated and tortured as a child, those feelings have to go somewhere. And they, they often can't. So they're you know, what psychologists believe is that we, there's a part of ourselves that becomes split off, dissociated from that. But those feelings will, will reemerge in adulthood. And too often we don't want to look to see, well, what created those, you know, feelings. So what, what would you like to see happen? I mean, you've, you've criticized the justice system. So what do you think are the necessary and achievable fixes here? I think some achievable fixes are to have, um, a lot of public education around child abuse. I mean, to abuse a child is to, it's just so, I mean, the effects of this are, are lasting and that's what creates violence. And it happens way too often. And I think it's something we don't talk about enough is what happens behind closed doors in homes. We can't, man- certainly in our country, we can't mandate anything. You know, you can't mandate a vaccination for fuck's sake, you know? <laughs> you know, we, 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 we should be, I think if, you know, if you're going to have a baby in a hospital, you got to watch a whole bunch of stuff and read some stuff about child abuse and what constitutes abuse. And you have to hear from children who have been abused and what, you know, what not having enough food means, you know, and like resources. So I think, you know, understanding the, importance of bringing a child into this world and raising a child, we got to, I just, I don't feel like we don't talk. I feel like we don't talk about it enough, you know? Mm, mm. It feels, it feels to me like for the longest time, abuse is, is kind of hard to even recognize or label, you know, you, yeah, you know, until know. it wasn't I until I was probably in my late twenties that I started re- recognizing that like a few of my friends had probably grown up in really quite abusive households. Yeah. And I was like, oh shit, that thing that I'd like heard about, like this yeah. meaningless sort of phrase, yeah. you probably went through that, which is why you're behaving like this now. Like, right. it, like it takes, it takes a while for you to kind of like see it. Yes. You know, once it's happening, it's so hard. It's hard to detect it, and it's hard to intervene. Like the, it's very hard to stop it. it then, what you do with these kids? You know, I don't know about you guys, but our foster care system is kind of a mess. Yeah, yeah. I do think that there should be a lot more awareness around the effect that alcohol has on men. I mean, ninety-five percent of people behind bars are are male. That's just yeah. a fact, right? And so there's, you know, t- I don't know if it's, it's the testosterone, but uh, socialization and, and men in general are more, they're, they're more comfortable with 
engaging in violence. I'm not saying against necessarily even others, but just whatever, men are more socialized. If, you know, women will hurt themselves, men will tend to hurt others, you know, mm. when in, in, in places of despair, right? Men express their feelings outward, women often more yes. inward, yeah. And alcohol yeah. seems to be a gateway. And it's, and we, and again, like what, where's the alcohol industry? You know, when a person is sentenced to die or life in prison without parole and they were drunk because we, yeah. every other billboard glamorizes drinking, you know? Well, that's right. I mean, we put that's a lot right. of, you know, we don't, you know, we don't, smoking use has gone down, right? Because we exposed all the evils of tobacco. Let's just, I'm not saying ban alcohol, bring back the temperance, but, but, but like, yeah, let's yeah. at least get aware. We need to be aware. Yes. Of its yeah. effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I yeah. agree. Look, I probably, I probably have only got a few more questions, but um, my understanding is that of all of the cases, all of the death row cases you've taken on, you've you've had a success rate of one hundred percent. No one's ever got the needle after they've uh, met you. So you know, it seems like you're doing a pretty amazing job. Like that's a that's an incredible oh, success rate. This is a shallow victory, though. Is it? Why? Uh, yeah, because my clients they get, they get life in prison without parole, or they get. You know, I've had a couple cases recently where we got less than life. But that was, you know, 38 years, 38 to 78 year sentence, 45 to 90. Right. I so that's I, pretty much life anyway. Yeah, yeah. 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 So like what what next for you? You know, like what's yeah. what's the dream? Like where do you feel like the the uh the finish line is? Oh, that's that's a great question. Um I, I don't know. I don't know. I just I keep taking cases and I hope that I what would make me happy at the end? I mean, if I when I when I decide to decide to retire. I guess I would feel that I've made a difference if, you know, I've seen more clients. I've had one innocence case now, actually, where the guy is, he's, he's, he's getting, he was sentenced to die as a juvenile. It was a juvenile lifer case. The guy I told you about, Sean, right, that I started this interview yeah. with. So Sean, yeah. who was sentenced to life in prison without parole. So I went to, to visit him. Um, I was doing a case in a neighboring area. Anyway, I went to visit him and reconnected with him. Blah, blah, blah. And, one of my cases, his client's name is Malik Williams. And Malik, um, so he's in the same prison that Sean is in. 2,000 men in this prison, okay? 2,000. So um, before I met Malik, I said to Sean, by, by any chance, he called me when I'm like, by any chance, you wouldn't happen to know this guy named Malik Williams, would you? Like, have 2,000 inmates. He's like, oh, yeah, M. Dot. They called him M. Dot for some reason. Oh, yeah, M. Dot. Sure, I know him. He's like, oh, he's innocent. You know that, right? I'm like, I'm like, what? Holy shit. You think he, he really is innocent? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, look, when you meet him, you're going to know. He's a geek. He's like this nerdy kid. He's an artist. He's like this. He's a tall, thin, black kid who like grew up in the hood, but is a total geek. He said, Sean said, oh, he, you know, he hangs out with these other prisoners who like play Dungeons and Dragons and they're the kids. And so sure enough, so I met him and I could tell like the minute he walked into the room, he's like this, he's so, he's so meek and mild mannered and he doesn't curse. I mean, I curse like a sailor, you know? And he's like, <laughs> he says, oh my word. I mean, like, yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So, long story short, no, the kid was totally fucking framed, and uh, you know, he was framed. Nothing yeah, short of framed. Yeah. I mean, well, the the cops convinced the cops convinced another kid to lie, and the uh, kid oh, they wow. needed to solve a homicide, and they convinced another kid to lie and to pin it on a leak. And wow. we, I uh, convinced the lawyers. 
that's like the hardest part of my job is convincing these attorneys to sometimes just, sometimes you know what, you need to believe the defendant. Sometimes they're not lying, folks. You know, so I convince yeah. them he's not lying, I promise you. And we hired an investigator and we tracked down that kid who's now an adult that lied, okay, about Malik when, when Malik was 15 and the kid was, they were both 16, okay? And that was, that was the state's only evidence against Malik was this cockamamie testimony from this kid, another kid from the hood. Seriously, that was their only evidence. There was no, it was such a horrendously mishandled case. Yeah, so yeah, we, and that, that's we, incredible yes, that that was sufficient. It was Just, sufficient evidence to ruin this kid's life because you know what? In America, if you're a black or brown kid from the ghetto, you your life does not matter. Not in a, I can't tell you, like most cases I work on, there are two black people in the entire courtroom, my client and his mother. That's it. Mm. Nobody on the jury is black, you know? And this yeah. is, anyway, so- it's, Our it investigator always, like, went and tracked down this this man. His name is Darren. Okay, he tracked him down, and got, Darren opens his door. Our investigator said, "Sir, I'm here to talk to you about a case ten years ago that you testified in a trial. The defendant's name is Malik Williams, and we think that he's innocent. And you know what Darren's first words were? He said." I've been waiting for this knock on my door for 10 years. Thank God mm. you've come. He said, I was uh, a child. That's heartbreaking. Isn't it heartbreaking? That's heartbreaking so and infuriating. And infuriating, yes. Yes, yes. And thank God, this, I mean, this, that, that, and that was a miracle because people like Darren typically don't want, are not going to admit that. They're not going to talk. But Darren had yeah. found God. Darren had had a religious conversion and uh, and came to the attorney's offices and sat down with them and gave a tape recorded sentence. And you know what? All this is going to be presented to a judge in about two weeks. And uh, this judge better fucking let this kid out, or I'm gonna, I don't know, I'm gonna be writing op eds and you know. So we got two weeks. So his, two weeks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But but yeah, one please. judge could be like, eh, you know what? We don't really buy it. But I don't yeah, think that's gonna yeah, happen. Yeah. yeah. Jennifer, you gotta you gotta keep us updated. Thanks, we gotta, I will. We hear how this <laughs> yeah, one ends. yeah, I will. Okay, well, look, I think I think we're sort of getting to the end of this. I guess I like to finish with just one last sort of like big big question. I'm just going to put it back on you, and and that is like, what what do you want people to take away from this? You know, if there's if there's one kind of message that you can leave listeners with, what would that be? Look beyond a person's actions. Understand that people who do horrendous, violent things have have had that happen to them. And they've also, none of us would like to be judged by our single worst deed, right? They're judged by their single worst deed. And that's not fair. You know, there's, we all need, you know, a whole life. There's, we have lives and we have, there's, there's nobody that I've met who hasn't had some, you know, act of kindness, some good deed that was done, you know? And so to define somebody by their single worst deed, I think is, is 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 uh, not fair. I think that's sage advice. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> humans are messy. Yeah, <laughs> I completely humans agree. are messy. Exactly. Before we go today, I've got an update on the on the young man Jennifer was talking about. Uh, his name was Malik. He was the guy who was wrongfully convicted as a teenager, and unfortunately, he's still in prison. Uh, apparently, the attorneys are continuing to strategize about how to get him out. Um, anyway, Jennifer wrote to me. She said this. 
Even with no physical evidence and a recanted eyewitness testimony, plus a team of lawyers working on his behalf, getting an innocent person out of prison is extremely difficult. If you've enjoyed this episode and you're thinking, hey, I've got a story that's similar, or, you know, maybe a story that's even better, please hit me up. We're always looking for story suggestions, and I am Julian Morgans on Instagram or Morgans Julian on Twitter. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Tuffery. It was edited and mixed by Jimmy Saunders, who also did our theme music. Our cover art is by Naomi Lee Beveridge, and our intern was Gabrielle Wani. And this whole thing has been a super real production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.